If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. And we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. Please stand with me as we hear the holy, sufficient word of our Lord. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you especially for this letter of Paul to the Galatians. We pray that you would make it take root in our hearts that we might experience the blessing of obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Oftentimes we are tempted in many ways not only to look back, but to be nostalgic. And there are times in which we are nostalgic about things that we shouldn't be. We make things out to be better than they are. We try and recreate a world that once was. That can happen in our nation. It can happen in our societies. It happens in our marriages and in our families. But perhaps the most pernicious place it happens is in our religion, in our relationship with the Lord. We somehow think that what we need to do is just recapture something that's lost, something that perhaps we longed for in the past. That's sort of the situation here with the Galatians. Not that they are longing for something they have done, but there are an entire group of people in their midst that want them to look back, want them to experience what they have experienced. Trying to turn 
their faith on their heads. Taking them back, as we looked at last week, to elementary principles. And the Apostle Paul comes to the Galatians and reminds them that they're not to look back. That the past is not better than the future. That God is doing marvelous things in their midst and that they need to move forward and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is very worked up about this. He's gotten to this point in the letter where he has basically tried just about everything he can with the Galatians. He's given them a doctrinal lesson. He's lectured to them and encouraged them about the history of redemption. He's talked to them about their personal experience. And now, with the heart of a pastor, he comes to them with a plea that they would not look back, that they would not seek the things that are past, but that they would move on in the Spirit and move on in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's plea is not just applicable to the Galatians. It's applicable to you and me as well. When we are tempted to look back to the past, tempted to rest in things we have done, tempted to find our meaning in our works. And so Paul tells us three things here this morning. The first is he gives to the Galatians and us a pastor's warning. A warning from a pastor. And then he describes the pastor's work to us, that we might know where we are to go. He gives us a warning and then describes to us the pastor's work and what is involved in the work of the gospel. And then finally, Paul doubly opens up his heart to us and he shows us a pastor's love for his people. So let us then look at this encouragement from Paul to look forward and not to look back. First, let's look at the pastor's warning, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 4. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul begins by reminding them of who they were. He tells them, remember who you were. Now, this is in sharp contrast to where we have just been. If you look back just two short verses, you'll see that Paul is describing to them their current state in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are sons of God. They have the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. They cry out in the most intimate of fashions, Abba, Father. They are sons and heirs. And Paul then describes to them the sharp difference that that is with who they once were. Formerly, he says, you were this. You were people who didn't know God. You were people who were enslaved. And you weren't even enslaved to something of substance. You were enslaved to things that you thought were gods, but aren't any kind of God at all. The language that Paul uses here in saying formerly marks a very sharp contrast. You'll look a bit further down. He says, why would you want to be enslaved once more, in verse 9, to these things? He's reminding them that the past is past. And the reason for this is, he's pleading with them, saying to them, as if this, why in the world would you want to go back to that? 
He's striking at the heart of what the Judaizers are trying to draw them back to. He says, these things that you're fascinated with, that you think are such the substance of Christianity. Remember, we spoke about it last week. The graduate school of theology. It's really kindergarten. Why would you want to go back there? You can imagine the question and answer that might go on if Paul was in their midst. You want to go back. Oh, it's so you can go back to the fake gods. These so-called gods. That's why you want to go back. Oh, no, you want to go back so you can be slaves again. Slavery is so fun, isn't it? You know, we look back in the scriptures, and constantly for us, we have the Old and New Testament, but you can imagine the Galatians would look back in the scriptures that they had the Old Testament and do much of what we do. We look back and we say, those apostles, if they could only get a clue, why do they keep doing this? And we flip back further. Those Israelites, what are they doing? Oh, I can't believe it. They just left Egypt and they want to go back. And they make things up like they sat by the pots of meat and ate to the full. Don't they remember what slavery was like in Egypt? That it was death and beatings and starvation? But you see, Paul reminds us that that lesson is not just for others. It's for us. We shouldn't seek to go back to bondage, to slavery, to a lack of reality. These so-called gods that Paul refers to again in 1 Corinthians 8. He says these aren't even gods at all. Pretending they're gods doesn't make them so. We're reminded of that constantly, are we not? That verse in 1 Corinthians 8 is on the tag of all of Pastor Carol's emails. So that reminds me of that, that we are not to seek things that are false, not to go back to a lack of reality. You see, that was the main difference, and is the main difference, between Christianity and all other religions. Do you know that what Christians were persecuted for was not for believing in Jesus Christ? It was for atheism. It was because they didn't believe in Zeus and the Pantheon. They didn't believe the emperor was a god. They didn't believe that the gods of Isis and Osiris that the Egyptians believed in were real. They knew that they were figments of the imagination of men and women. And that was not very good in a tolerant society that has a tolerance for everything but absolute truth. Does that sound familiar? That's the world that Paul and the Galatians lived in. And that fairly describes the world that we live in as well. The church is castigated. The church is abused. The church is mocked because it will not allow Allah to be God. Buddha to be God. The Mormon God to be God. But you see, these are so-called gods. You cannot have the Lord Jesus Christ and anything else as a god. These things are weak and worthless, Paul says. They're a complete waste of your time. Why go back to bondage, figments of your imagination, and weakness? This is who you were. But think 
about then who you are now, Paul says to them in verse 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather have come to be known by God, how can you turn back again? He says, think about who you are now. Now you are one who is known by God. You see, Paul tells us that the Christian life begins with God. I'm often fascinated by those who believe that if we can just avoid a few select passages in the Scriptures, Romans 9, Romans 11, a few other places, we could totally avoid the doctrine of election. Totally avoid the fact that salvation begins with God and comes from God. You see, Paul here is in the midst of an emotional pastoral plea. The man with crocodile tears in his eyes and his hand up and telling everyone to put their heads down has nothing on Paul here. This is true emotion. He is pleading for a people and he brings in the doctrine of election. Why? Because it's a comfort to them. He says, you are known by God. He, he says it in such a way to emphasize it. He corrects himself. He says, you know God. No, wait a minute. That's not what I mean. What's more important is that you are known by God. And that's a theme that he's been playing out here. Because how do we cry out, Abba, Father, but that the Lord adopts us? You see, life, the gospel, begins with God. And that's a wonderful thing for us because that shows us our worth, doesn't it? So when we are tempted, as perhaps we may be at the end of a year, to look back and think of all the relationships we fumbled, all the things we failed to say, all the things that we have left undone, what Paul says is the important thing is that you have worth because you are known by God. Don't worry about whether you're circumcised or not. Don't worry about whether you can beat the Judaizers at Bible Blitz. You are known by God. And Paul says that today to you and to me. What greater blessing could we have than to be known by God? And being known by God leads to us knowing God. Paul says the difference between who you were and who you are is that now you know God. And this knowledge is more than just a bare intellectual assent. You've probably, if you've been in the church any length of time, heard a minister or a preacher talk about this, that knowing God is not just about knowing 2 plus 2 is 4. It's about having a relationship. The classic example that we have in the old King James Bible is in Genesis 4, when it describes Adam and Eve coming together, and it says that Adam knew Eve, describing the most intimate relationship Coming together in marriage, being together in a relationship. And that's what this kind of knowledge is. We are to know God, we are to experience Him. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. And again, this shouldn't surprise us, because we just saw two chapters ago that Paul said there is faith and there is a real faith. Real faith is not just knowing some facts and believing them. Real faith is trust. And relationship. That's what Paul says here to them. It goes beyond a mere assent. 
This is who you are, one who is known by God and one who knows God. And then Paul says to them in verse 10, he says, Look out! You don't want to get caught here. He says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He says, You know, conversion is about a complete break with the culture. Even here, the culture of Judaism. You see, what Paul is not saying here is that it is a sin for them to observe any day. We don't need to be like the Jehovah's Witnesses and pour water all over birthdays. We're not forbidden from singing a Christmas carol. It's not going to be horrible to say Happy New Year to someone tonight. But you see, the difference is the Judaizers were saying, unless you observe this day, unless you observe this month, unless you observe this season, you're not really a believer. God really doesn't like you. He likes me more because I observe it, and I observe it really well. You see, that's the difference. Because Paul will write in Romans that if one observes a day, that's fine, and if another doesn't, that's fine. But you see, to make it a test of the gospel, as the Judaizers were, must be opposed on all grounds. He said, that's bondage. You're looking back to the past. You cannot have Christ plus anything. One commentator puts it this way, I think, very well. He says, whatever leads one away from sole reliance on Christ, whether it's based on good intentions or depraved desires, that is sub-Christian and therefore to be condemned. You see, even good things, like memorizing the scriptures or prayer, if we think that we merit before God because of them, they're wicked and need to be tossed aside. There will be nothing plus Jesus. You see, Paul here is excluding both moralism and mysticism. He says you can't do things to come to know God. And he says you can't do things to come to know God either. You can't seek God. You must be known by God first. That is how you get from who you were to who you are. This is the pastor's warning. But then he, can, he moves to the pastor's work here in verse 12. After he's given them a stern warning, notice what Paul does. And make this your model in ministry. He gives them the strongest of warnings. And then what's his first word in verse 12? Brothers. You notice that? Paul doesn't mince words. He's just telling them basically, are you nuts? Do you want to go back to slavery and death? And then he says... But listen, brothers, and he approaches them with endearment. He's not set for a fight. He's pleading with them. And he says, the first thing that we need to know is that the gospel is first. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. If you keep track of these sorts of things... And I do because I have not one but two computer programs that help me. You'll find that this is the first real imperative in the book of Galatians. It's the first real command. There have been other commands that are quotations of Scripture, 
But this is the first time that Paul looks the Galatians in the eye and says, you have to do this. And notice what he says. He says, become as I am, because I have become as you are. It's as if Paul is saying to them, listen, I was bound to the law. I kept the seasons and the days and the times better than any Judaizer could dream. I had a postgraduate degree in law-keeping. But look at me now. I'm not a slave to the law. I'm free. You should be free as well. Become as I am. And notice what he says here. He says, because I have become as you are. Now, the application of this is startling to us, I think. What Paul says to them is, basically... You think law-keeping and keeping of seasons and rituals is all the rage? Do you know how you came to know God or came to be known by God? I came into your town. And I was a Jew of Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, and I became like a stinking Greek pagan, so you would have the gospel. I was in your midst. I ate your food. I sat at your tables. I put your kids on my lap. I counseled you. I talked with you. I encouraged you. I became like you are. You wouldn't even know the gospel, but that the Lord had brought me here. He says, how then can all of this law-keeping, how can all of this ritual, how can the past be anything that's good to you? You didn't know the gospel from that. He says, become as I am. Now, notice here the link between Paul's theology and his pastoral concern. This is something we've been talking about in Sunday school, about being all things to all men. And the theology of putting the gospel first and making the gospel primary. And the reason that we do so is not so that we're right. It's so that we win others. It's so that others know the gospel. And they can take the gospel out to other places. This is the pastor's work, and it is the parishioner's work as well to take the gospel out. And notice Paul's emphasis here. It's as if he's trying to encourage the Galatians. He says, you did me no wrong. He says, if I'm sharp with you, it's not because of some personal grudge. Have you ever had that happen with you? Perhaps it's when your husband or your wife gives you the cold shoulder. Or one of your kids is rumphing around the house. Or there's somebody at church that doesn't wave at you when they usually wave. And you wonder, what in the world did I do? You see, Paul doesn't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. Even though he would have grounds, he could say, listen, stop bad-mouthing me. Stop saying I don't know the gospel. Stop saying you need something else. Stop saying I wasted my time here. He would have grounds, but he waves it all away. And he says, you did me no wrong. Don't worry about it. Focus upon the gospel. Put the gospel first. He reminds them, that's also the pastor's work. You've heard me say this. You're going to hear me say it again. And you've heard me say that, which is, my job is to remind you of the same things over and over and over and over again. And once I've reminded you, I'm going to remind you some more. It's 
where a pastor's job is most like a mother's job. You know? I know there's every mother that sort of on one level wishes she could carry around a portable recorder and say, stop doing that, so she doesn't have to talk. She just points, stop doing that. She doesn't have to look, stop doing that. Because that's what reminding over and over again. And that's what Paul does here. He reminds them. He reminds them of when he initially came to be with them and reminds them of their initial reception of him. Look at what he says. He says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. He says, think about the power of God in circumstances. The gospel came to you because I was sick. Now, we don't know what he was sick with. Some commentators think it's epilepsy. Those of you that suffer through things like that, God uses that for the gospel. Nobody would choose to have epilepsy. But it could be that that's what brought the gospel to Galatia and this letter to us. Pretty good sickness. In God's mercy. Some others think it was malaria that perhaps Paul caught as he was going along what they call the mosquito coast there. Others think that perhaps it was bad vision. I can relate to that. From especially where Paul says, you would pluck your eyes out and give them to me. The truth is we don't really know, and the point is we don't really need to know. The point is God uses the most miserable and horrible of circumstances in Paul's life to bring the gospel to others. Paul's reminding them of this, that the gospel came to them in weakness. He's contrasting himself with the Judaizers who are proud about how buff they are, how shiny their Bibles are, how neat their clothes are. And Paul says, I came to you and I was a wreck. And he says, do you remember how you responded? You didn't scorn me. The word there that's used for scorn literally means spit. Get so angry or so disgusted, you spit. You've seen that in, in old movies, perhaps, where someone mentions the name of a hated enemy and they, and they spit on the ground. Because you see, in this day and age, in Greece, if you had physical sickness, it was usually thought it was related to being afflicted by a demon, being a devil. That's sort of The saying, a sound mind and a sound body, taken to the nth degree. But you see, Paul says, you saw past that in the mercy of God. That that's not truth. That superficiality is not where we end. And you see, Paul says, this was an opportunity to bring you the gospel. Now, this is an application for us. Have you ever noticed that just about anything in Paul's life is the perfect opportunity to bring the gospel to someone. One commentator puts it this way. He says, For Paul, everything became a kairos, the perfect time, the critical time. We're going to look at that word tonight in Romans 13. But the critical time to preach. Let's see. Malaria, preach the gospel. Whippings and beatings, preach the gospel. Having to work, preach the gospel. Everything to Paul was an opportunity. Do we see that as we are out and about? Do we think about the circumstances that the Lord has given to us and the opportunity that it provides to us to minister to others? That's a difficult task, isn't it? Because when things are bad, my first reaction is to be 
downright miserable and ornery about it. Why does this happen to me? And how come? And it's not fair. But you see, Paul didn't have that attitude. Because his focus was upon his work and the gospel and reminding others. He reminds the Galatians about their reaction to him and the blessing that they received. He says, You know that because of a bodily ailment I preached the gospel to you, and you received me as an angel of God. This was, he said, What then has become of the blessing you felt? In verse 15. It was a joy, a blessing they received at having Paul bring the gospel to them. It was a joy that caused love to outflow from them. So much so that Paul says, you would have ripped out your own eyes if there would have been a transplant surgeon available. This is not just learning and doctrine. This is love. He says, remember the love you had when the gospel came to you. But he doesn't just remind. The pastor's work is to do more than just tell about the gospel and remind. He also challenges them. Look at verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He says, the very message that brought us together, now it seems to be pushing us apart. Why is that? Now, here's one of these few applications that has an application that's about 95% you and only a little bit me. And that's by circumstance. Or Almost every other application hits at home first. But that is this. Ministers have to say unpopular things. If the Lord blesses our ministry here together, and I live here among you the next 40 years, I guarantee I'm going to offend nearly every one of you. Sometimes unjustly and without a reason. And sometimes justly. Because you need to be provoked. Not because I think so, but because the Word of God says so. And I would not be serving myself or God or you by sugarcoating the truth. That's what Paul says. Now, notice he's concerned that they might hate him. And it comes in a context in which he is pouring out his heart for them with love. That's the life of a minister. Aside, that's the life of an elder. Elders. To be unappreciated. To have people not know what you do and have you not mention what you do so that others know what you do. That's the life of a deacon, deacons. On some level, that's even the life of a Sunday school teacher and a father and a mother. Think about all the things that you do for your children that they don't appreciate for 30, 40 years. I'm just now getting around to thinking about the things that my father did. But you see, Paul is not concerned about challenging them. John Brown, the old Puritan, puts it this way. He says, Happy is the Christian society when the minister loves his people and the people love their minister for the truth's sake. Not because of the cut of his coat or the turn of his phrase or the beauty of his wife, but for the truth's sake. That's the pastor's work. And the pastor's work is known, finally here, our third point, because of the pastor's love. Look here at verse 17. He says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Paul begins here describing his love for them by holding up for them the bad example. 
Now, this is something that we do oftentimes, right? We see it all the time in advertising. Someone wants to sell you a cleaner, they do what? They take grape juice and, and mud and they pour it all over and then they get out the name brand, usually with a white slip over it. Oh, look at this. Oh, it doesn't work at all, does it? But our brand, so you have something to compare it to. And he says, these Judaizers, you know, they've tried to use flattery with you. He says, they make much of you. They're zealous about you. They compliment you. They tell you how smart you are. They tell you how well you're doing in catechism class. They tell you how good you are doing at memorizing all the dates and seasons and years. But he says, they don't do it for good purpose. You see, when we do that, and it's not for love, it's worthless. He says, they do it not for your benefit, but for their own. He says, they try to shut you out. And it's almost as if Paul is becoming so emotional here, he trails off. Have you ever had that? When you start talking to your kids, you get, don't, don't. You can't finish a sentence. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, they want to shut you out from me. And by implication, from Christ. He says, they want to keep me as far away as they can. Because they want to keep my message as far away as they can. Because they want control. Look at what they do. They shut you out that you may make much of them. You see, they want to tell you how great you are and keep you isolated so that you stroke them. Oh, it's so wonderful. You taught me all the things about circumcision. I never would have realized that. You know, we see this in our own day and age. One of the things, talk about reminding, that I'll remind you oftentimes is, if you hear something from the Bible that you had never heard before, never read before, and someone is shocked that they just finally came up with this, be incredibly suspect. Because usually, there's a reason why no one's thought of it before. But you see, someone loves that because they love us to say, oh, you're so brilliant. What a great Bible teacher you are. And Paul says, this gets to be so bad that in Corinth, we've got people walking around saying, well, I'm a Paul. Well, that's all right with you. I'm a Peter. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm better than all of you. I'm of the Jesus Christ party. And he says it just, it forms division and hurts the gospel. This is what they do. You see, it's about power. It's about fame. And you see, Paul is so different. He says, I labor, in verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. The job of ministry is not to make little us's. It's to make followers of Christ. That's what Paul says. That's what he wants to do. Calvin puts it this way. He says, let ministers labor to form Christ, not themselves, in others. Again, if the Lord blesses us and I'm with you these next 40 years, I don't want Christ Church to look like Fred Greco. There are ministries where that's the case. Sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly. I would hope that throughout the years that I would begin to look like you and you would begin to look like me as we all begin to look more like Jesus. That's our goal. That's what we seek. That's what we want for our ministry. We don't want to be selfish like the Judaizers. The alternative 
in verse 18 and following, is to be selfless. Paul says it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you. He says it depends on the purpose. Now, do you notice that Paul's not concerned with other people and his opinions? He doesn't even name the Judaizers. You know, in the Greek, it's startling. There's not even a word for they. It's an ending stuck on a verb. They're about as anonymous as you can possibly be and still be mentioned. Paul says, I don't even want to be bothered with them. I want the message to be central, not the messenger. I want Christ to be formed in you. You see, Paul's pastor's heart and pastor's love is for them. His desire is for them. We see it in all the midst of this agony and strife when he calls them brothers. He calls them little children. The dearest term that he could use. It's not children. There's a different word for children. This is like peanut. Or something like that. Shortcake. Sweetheart. Paul was concerned for them. And so what Paul has for us to see is that it is impossible to be an armchair theologian. Because you see, Paul's zeal for the truth, we've been going through it over and over and over again, haven't we? Seeing him lay down doctrine, lay down what we are to believe, telling us what justification by faith is. And he says, I do all of this because I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why I study. That's why I teach. I do it because of a pastor's heart. Well, Paul shows us here in seeing the pastor's warning, the pastor's work, and the pastor's love, that there are real consequences to turning back and going back. It's to be enslaved. It's to be wrong-headed. It's to be dealing with fake things. Paul encourages us to look to the reality of Jesus Christ, to look forward. And as we said this morning... This table drives us forward. We look to the day in which the Lord Jesus Christ will come. We look to the day in which we will be with our Lord and we will see Him as He is. So let us think about that as we prepare now to partake of the Lord's Supper together.